I hope that we've done enough through this study that people have been able to see that we have sufficient evidence to trust the Bible. And that's, that's been my desire, is that people understand that when we bank our lives on this book, we don't do it blindly. We, we do it because there is, there is sufficient evidence to, to be able to know that it is the Word of God and that He has preserved it and that it is worth, um, it is worth giving our lives to. Um, so tonight what I want to do is um, I want to study the very last page of, um, of our study that we have. And I hope that you, you've got a copy of it. Nathan's not here to help me, so I'm not going to be able to get you a copy. But the very last page, we're going to be talking about where do we stand as far as everything that we've talked about on the Word of God. And you remember we have, we have determined that um, through the prophets and the apostles' ministry, through the evidence that was supplied to them, that we can definitely see that they were from God, that they spoke the words of God, that um, uh, from what the life that Jesus lived, the, um, the, the things that Jesus did, we can, we can say without a doubt that we can trust Jesus, we can trust His Word. And so ultimately, whenever we, we look at all that, we need to be able to ask the question, where do we stand as far as the Word of God goes on all of the evidence that we have discussed on this? And that's what uh, John MacArthur here is pointing out. So on that last page, notice it says, in April 1521, Martin Luther appeared before his ecclesiastical accusers at the Diet of Worms. Now, let me explain that just a little bit, all right? Now, this is not Martin Luther King, all right? This is Martin Luther, long before Martin Luther King. Uh, this was back in the 15, well, 1521 is uh, the exact date of it. But uh, Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. He was also a professor at a college, and I think it was Wittenberg, if I remember correctly. I'd have to research and look it up again. But basically, Martin Luther had determined that the teachings of the Catholic Church were so far away from Scripture that it had to be addressed. And so he decided that he was going to write what they called 95 theses. And basically, it was 95 statements of... Um, correction that is needed in the Catholic Church and their practices and their teachings, especially concerning salvation and how man receives the grace of God. And so he nailed these 95 theses to the, to the um, Catholic Church's door, I guess you could say, and ultimately they didn't, he was looking for a public discussion on it. He wanted the, the leaders of the Catholic Church to come together and just have a public discussion over all of these areas that uh, were of major concern in their teaching. They didn't do that, and instead what happened was in the city of Worms in Germany, there was a meeting which of, the, um, of the imperial leaders of the Holy Roman Empire. And so basically you have all the kings of, not, we're not talking about the Roman Empire. Now the Roman Empire I think died out in the 4th or 5th century, I believe it was. But somewhere around the 8th century, um, the Catholic Church tried to revise the old Roman Empire, and they called it the Holy Roman Empire. And this empire lasted from the 8th century to somewhere around, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I think it was like 15 or 1600, I believe it was. Well, it was at least 1521 because they're addressing Martin Luther here. But anyway... 
all the leaders of the Holy Roman Empire, and you can imagine that if it's the Holy Roman Empire, then uh, Catholicism is the religion of this place, right? And so everything is based around the Catholic faith. And all the kings and all the leaders of um, the Holy Roman Empire gathered together in a city of Germany called Worms. And so this is the diet, or diet means assembly. And so it's the assembly that met at Worms. And ultimately, what you're going to see next, it says, they had given him the ultimatum to repudiate his unwavering faith in the sufficiency and the perspicuity, which basically means the clarity of the Scriptures. And so he had an, basically in, in, this, in these 95 theses, some of the things that he addressed was, for instance, um, they, had be, they had begun to teach that the way that a person was forgiven of their sins was through the sacrament of penance. And ultimately, the sacrament of penance meant that if Fagan committed a sin, then he could go and he could sit with the priest, he could confess his sins to the priest, and then the priest would have some um, instruction for him to be absolved of it. And so he would get absolution for his sins from that priest through whatever it was that he was directed to do. I know you've probably seen TV shows and stuff to where people confess and the priest will say back something like, well, go do ten Hail Marys and this and this and this. So ultimately, the Roman Catholic Church had turned into a faith plus works-based salvation. So do this, do this, and do this, and then this is how you receive absolution for your sins. And so basically, Martin Luther and several other leaders had had a big issue with um, forgiveness coming through confessing to a man and then that man absolving you for your sins. Uh, the Bible did not teach that. And he did not stand behind that. And so this was, if you were to look up and Google tonight uh, Martin Luther's 95 theses, then you will come to, I think number one through six or seven is basically about this right here. It's about the sacrament of penance and how they, um, they receive forgiveness for any sins that they had committed. And so that was one of the things that, that happened. Also, another thing that he, he addressed was what we call or what they called indulgences. And so there are many of the theses that um, Martin Luther wrote out of that 95 that address indulgences. And so another way that they offered forgiveness for sins and absolution for sins is if you paid a certain price. So basically you could pay a certain amount of money, and this money was going to build St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. And so again, the Holy Roman Empire is being built on forgiveness of sins, basically. And Martin Luther steps up and says, this is not right. This is not what the Bible teaches about. And at this day and time, there was not a German translation of the Bible. And so ultimately, these people had to depend on the priests and the Catholic Church and the leaders to, from the Latin to be able to share with them what the Word of God. Most people did not have a copy of the Word of God. And as a matter of fact, I don't know when the dates were, but at some point in this time, it was actually against the law for you to have your own copy of the Bible. And so that's the reason why having a Bible in our day and time is such a, it should be such a huge deal to us because there have been ages to where you weren't allowed to own your own Bible. And basically you just had to depend that whatever I told you is what the Word of God said. And so 
people got so far away from this and, and the, the priest and the Pope and so many others were teaching these false doctrines. And so they believed that you could give payment for sin for absolution. They also believed that you could give payment for sin for somebody in uh, purgatory. So they began to teach that basically if a professing Christian or a Catholic person died, yet they were not, um, they had not, they had not been absolved of all their sin. They hadn't confessed, they hadn't been through the sacrament of penance, they hadn't uh, partaken of the Eucharist and all these other sacraments that they have. If they have not done that, then since they were not an unbeliever, where they may end up at is in purgatory. And purgatory would have been a holding place, if you will, uh, for the dead. And so during this time, um, the priest or the pope could uh, absolve somebody even after they had died, and they, had, they could uh, grant them the rights of, of the sacraments of penance, and somebody else could partake of the Eucharist, and, or um, someone could pay an indulgence and, um, and basically get them out of purgatory so that they could go to heaven. And again, this was a very false teaching. And so, and, and you can read this for yourself. Go home and, and look up Martin Luther's 95 Theses, and you will be able to read all 95 of the things that he addressed. And they have to do, I'm summarizing all of them up into what we're dealing with tonight. Um, and again, these indulgences were used to build the Vatican, basically, and so the Pope basically didn't have an issue with it. Because we're building our kingdom, you know, we're building this great city for God, and so they they resolved it. Another thing, another thing that they looked at was that they didn't believe in the authority of Scripture alone, and so basically they believed that the Pope had equal authority with the Scripture, and so if the Pope established that this was forgivable or this was not forgivable or this is uh, what we had to do in order to receive absolution, then the Pope was equal with Scripture. And so even though Scripture didn't teach this, if the Pope taught this, then it was equal in authority. They also believed that the um, traditions of the church were also equal in authority with Scripture. And so if the church had established a tradition of something over time, even if it wasn't in alignment with the Scriptures, that it was still godly and it was still right because church tradition was equal to Scripture. And again, Martin Luther and many others have a huge problem with these teachings, and rightfully so. This is really the reason why we are in our faith today. This is where all of what we call Protestants come from. And so basically, us as Baptists, we protest these teachings of the Catholic faith. This is the reason why Scripture alone is so important to us because out of this reformation of the Catholic Church, and, and keep this in mind, Martin Luther had no desire to break away from the Catholic Church. He didn't want to break away from it. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. He wanted the, popes and the, the Pope and the priests to be able to come together and look at what the Scripture says, look at their teachings and say, okay, we're in error. But instead, you're going to read here in our study here in a minute that that's not what happened. They all came together and they wanted him to step away from all of his teachings and to redact him and say they're not, that he's wrong. And so ultimately, that's what we're dealing with here. Um, another thing um, 
that, that we saw other than purgatory is that salvation is through faith alone. Out of this Reformation came what we call the five solas. And sola just simply means it's Latin for alone, only. In other words, um, when, we, when we talk about faith alone, we mean that salvation is by faith alone. Not faith plus uh, confessing to a priest, not faith plus indulgences, not faith plus receiving the Eucharist from the priest, not faith plus anything. It's Jesus plus nothing. And so the Bible teaches us that salvation is by faith alone. Another alone is that it is by grace alone. So ultimately, out of those five solas, it was like this. Salvation is by faith alone. It is by, let me say this. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Those are three of the, of the solas that came out of this reformation that Martin Luther started. And ultimately, this is what we preach and what we teach today. This is the reason why every time I stand before you and I interpret the Bible for you, I'm showing you that the Scriptures teach that salvation is by grace alone. It's only by the grace of God, right? And it is through faith alone. It is only through faith that anyone will be saved. And it is in Christ alone. Not Christ plus this or this or this. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And then our authority comes from Scripture alone. That's the fourth sola. Um, scripture alone. Not Scripture and the authority of the priest. Not Scripture and the authority of the Pope. Not Scripture and the tradition of the church. No, it is Scripture alone. And this is the reason why this is what we bank our life on. Nothing else, no other writings, no other books. The Word of God and the Word of God alone. And then the final sola was to the glory of God alone. And so every bit of this is for the glory of God alone. Not for the glory of any man, not for the glory of any city, not for the glory of any building, not for the glory of any pope, priest, or, or anyone else. It is for the glory of God alone. Salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by the authority of Scripture alone, and then to the glory of God alone. And this is where we come from today as far as they would call us Protestants, is what it is. Now, I will be, I will be the first to say that in many ways, many ways the Catholic Church has reformed a lot of these teachings. You don't hear of indulgences near nothing like you did back then. But at the same time, when you go and you look at their beliefs, they are still not teaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, um, by the authority of Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. But instead, they still teach that Salvation comes through faith and the way that the grace of God is imparted to you is if you continue to do the sacraments of the church. If you continue the sacrament of penance. if you continue, And there are seven sacraments and you can go back and you can look those up as well. But again, here's the point. In April 1521, Martin Luther appeared before his ecclesiastical accusers at the assembly of the worms. And then he says they had given him the ultimatum to repudiate his unwavering faith in the sufficiency and the clarity of the Scriptures. So Martin Luther stands and he says, the Scriptures 
are sufficient for our doctrine, for our reproof, for our correction, for our instruction and in righteousness. Uh, the Scriptures are sufficient. We don't need Scripture plus the Pope, Scripture plus the priests. The Scripture alone are sufficient for this. All right? And they want Him to repudiate that. That basically, He's wrong. All right? And Luther is said to this. Luther is said to have responded, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. God help me, here I stand. That was his point in front of the Holy Roman Empire and all of its leaders, is that unless Scripture proves me wrong, then I will not repudiate any of these things that I have accused the Roman Catholic Church in false teaching. And he says here, God help me, here I stand. Whatever is to become of me is whatever is to become of me, but I will not change the teaching that I have already changed because Scripture has convinced me otherwise. Now my question to you is this, do you agree with Martin Luther? I believe he's absolutely right to trust Scripture over the counsel of popes or any other counsel for that matter. Um, I believe he is absolutely right for Scripture alone to be his sole authority for which he gets his teaching and his doctrine from. So, where do we stand? Well, like Martin Luther, may we rise above the doubts within and confront the threats without when God's Word is assailed. God help us to be loyal contenders of the faith. Let us stand with God and the Scripture alone. And that's exactly what we do. I think as you read this now, you understand why I spend so much time teaching you about the importance of the Word of God alone, right? I think you understand why I spend my time teaching from the Word of God alone. I mean, this is what we use. This is how we, this is how we teach. And so this, this is the reason why. Next we see um, the Bible. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. And that's the summary of the Bible. If you want to know the mind of God, is there any other book or anything else that you've ever seen anywhere that can tell you what God demands, why God created the world, what God demands of it, what God demands of us, and how we have fallen short of it, why the world is the way that it is, why I am the way I am. This is I've told you this many times, but one of my primary reasons why I believe wholeheartedly in the truth of the Bible is because it is the only thing that it can explain to me my, why my heart is the way it is. Nothing else can explain the heart of man. Nothing else can explain the evil that lies within, the thoughts that we have, the, the, the actions that we partake in. Nothing else can explain man the way that the Bible explains it. And it makes perfect sense. And so the Bible contains the mind of God, and it contains the state of man. And what is the state of man? That's exactly right. Dead in sin. It contains the way of salvation. It contains how we get back to our right state with God. 
And then it contains the doom of all who do not accept His salvation, right? So we know both sides here of what's going to happen through the Word of God. And it explains to us the happiness of believers. Exactly what believers can expect and the doom that sinners can expect. Every bit of that is told to us in the Bible. Its doctrine is holy. Its precepts are binding. And precepts just simply means its rules or its orders. Uh, uh, they're, they're binding. Its histories are true. Its decisions are immutable. That means that the decisions in the Bible are unchangeable. They will not change. They cannot change. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says, Read it to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. You catch that? If all you do is read it, all you will be is wise. If you read it to be wise and believe it, you will be saved. And then if you read it and believe it and are saved and you practice it, you will be holy. All of those things can be had from the Bible, from the Word of God. It contains light to direct you. It contains food to support you. And it contains comfort to cheer you. Let me ask you a question. Is there any other hope in this world other than what the Word of God teaches you? When your darkness comes, is there anything that could give you hope other than what the Word of God promises you? Nothing. Nothing. Not a single thing. Our only hope is what the Word of God promises us. And so, again, it contains light to direct you. Why do we need light? Because we're in darkness. We're in a dark world. So it contains light to direct you. And then he says that it contains food to support you because you need the food that it has to give for strength, for strength in this old dark world. And it contains the comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map. It is the pilgrim's staff. It is the pilot's compass. It is the soldier's sword. And the Christian's character. I was trying to think when it said the pilot's compass. I preached a sermon one time on... Um, oh, goodness. Spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation. Now, you may not remember that term, but you, you may remember the sermon. Spatial disorientation is a term that pilots use whenever... They are trained, they are taught to fly only by the instruments, never by your feelings. Because you can get in a place in the skies to where everything looks the same. And you, the instruments are telling you that this way is up and this way is down, but everything in you feels like this way is up and this way is down. Or, or this way is up and this way is down. One way or the other. So... The spatial disorientation is something that pilots have to train for because many they believe this is one of the things that happens in the Bermuda Triangle is that they get disoriented and the instruments are telling them what to do but it don't feel right. And so because inside of themselves it don't feel right, most of the time we're going to go with our instincts, right? And 
they crashed because the instruments were right. And so whenever I saw the pilot's compass, that's one of the things I thought about. There are so many times in our life that when we get in a, a dark place or in a tough place and we don't know which way to turn, we don't know which way is up, which way is down, but we're tempted to go by our own feelings, by our own, um, by our own thoughts, our own knowledge on what we need to do. And many times the Bible is completely contrary to that. All right? And so what we have to learn is just like those pilots, we have to learn that we can't fly by our feelings and by our thoughts, but this is our compass. This is our instrument. And if this says that that way is up, then we follow this way. Even when everything in us says, I need to go this way. All right? And so that's exactly what the Bible does for us. The Bible is a compass. It is a guide for us so that whenever we face any situation in our life, there is direction. There is an instrument here that we can follow that will give us light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. And if we will hide its words in our heart, we won't sin against God is what it promises. So it contains light to direct you. It contains food to support you. And it contains comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map. It is the pilgrim's staff. It is the pilot's compass. It is the soldier's sword. And it is the Christian's character. Here in this Bible, heaven is open and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is the grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. And that's exactly what you'll find in the Bible. Christ, our good, and God's glory. That's exactly what you will find in it and what you will get from it. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and it should guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. That's important too. If this is our sole authority, if this is where we get our doctrine from, if this is where we get our correction from, if this indeed is the Word of God, our compass for all of life, our light unto our path, then we should read it, but not just read it, read it slowly. Read it frequently. And read it prayerfully. I'm not one of those. Now, don't get me wrong. If, if you're one of these that I'm fixing to talk about, I ain't got a problem with you, all right? But I'm not one of those that is big on these read the Bible in a year. And I got all the way through the Bible. And again, my, listen, I'm not saying you were wrong for doing that. There ain't nothing wrong with reading the Bible. But I think that our focus ought to be to always pick it up to read it, not just to read through the Bible but to read it for the purpose of reading it slowly, reading it frequently, and making sure we're reading it in a way that it guides our life, not just that we read it, not just that we went through it. If it takes you 20 years to read the Bible, that's okay. That's okay. You go through it, you take your time through it, you learn from it. It's not, a, um, it's not just a mission to be completed. It's not. It is something that you need to uh, soak into your life day after day after day. And the Bible says even when this life is over, the Word of God remains forever. Forever and ever. And so, read it slowly. Read it frequently. And read it prayerfully. Why? Because this is God's Word. And the Bible says the natural man cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit. 
they are spiritually discerned. And if they are spiritually discerned, they will only come to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we read it, and we read it prayerfully. We read it prayerfully that God would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear, that He would awaken our hearts and that He would give us life from it as we read it. And then He says, It is a mine of wealth. It is health to the soul and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life. It will be opened at the judgment and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility. It will reward the greatest labor and condemn all who trifle with its contents. (laughs) Y'all catch that warning? And it will condemn all who trifle with its contents. And that's so important because so many people in, since the beginning of the Word of God have tried to trifle with the contents of the Word of God. And this is what, this is Satan's number one tool. This is where he began in the Garden of Eden. When he came to Adam and Eve, the very first thing he does is he, shows, he throws shade on the Word of God. God has made a word. God has told them what He requires. And what does He do? He comes to them and says, Did God really say that you can't eat from this tree and if you do, you will die? You won't die. In other words, you can't trust God. You can't trust His word. That's not what His word really means. That's not really what He said. You see what I'm saying? And this is the same thing that He has done. He did it with... um, Jesus in the garden. I could give you many examples of how He has done this, but those are two of the greatest. But in the garden, He does the same thing. He comes out and He says, um, Hey, if you're really the Son of God, then command those stones to be bread, for it is written. And then He quotes the Word of God. And then Jesus comes back and says, Yeah, but you have misinterpreted the Word of God. And so ultimately, again, he's trying to throw shade on the Word of God. And so today we have the same thing happening. The um, Jehovah's Witness do it through the watchtower and their teachings. They add to the Word of God and say, well, here's what you need in order to interpret it and get the most out of it. So they get the teachings from the watchtower and their prophets, if you will. And then the uh, Mormons do the same thing with... You, the word we they'll tell you we love the word of God and we believe the word of God, but the Book of Mormon was given so that it is correctly interpreted and translated today. It's another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then you have the New New Testament, the Book of Mormon. And so again, I really believe that you've got people that are trifling with the contents of the Word of God. And when you do that, it gives very strict warnings for that, that there is some serious condemnation coming for everyone who does that. And then the last part, it says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so ultimately they sum up, John MacArthur here, he sums up where we stand on the Word of God using 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And he commends the Thessalonians here for receiving 
not just their preaching, not just them, but they received the Word of God. And again, how did they know? Well, they knew it because it lined up with what the Old Testament taught. They also knew it because the evidence in Paul's life himself. Paul told them, or Paul told the Corinthians, the Second Corinthians, he said, the signs of a true apostle were worked in front of you. You ought to be able to look at me and know that I indeed am from God and there is no other way I could do any of the things that I do unless God is with me. The same thing that Nicodemus said about Jesus. Um, the evidence is there. And so they received it, not just as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now that's another thing. You can read it to be wise, but it only works in the life of believers. Anybody can read this word, but it will only change and it will only give new life to believers as they read it, as they study it. And so again, this is why I believe this Bible is the only authoritative Word of God. I believe that God has handed it down through um, inspiration. The Bible says that He wanted to reveal Himself being invisible. He revealed Himself through a general revelation of creation. And then He re revealed Himself through a special revelation through prophets and through apostles. All right, And then He has preserved this Word throughout time by making sure that even today we can go back and take our copy that you have right now and you can go home tonight and you can compare it to thousands of original manuscripts to know that the words you have today can be trusted, it is accurate, it has been preserved, and God has promised that it is going to remain forever and ever and ever. And I truly believe that if we will give our life to it, and it will be our sole authority in our lives, that it will correct us, it will um, instruct us, it will give us um, um, true doctrine that we need in our life, it will be a light unto our feet, a lamp unto our path. And I believe that it will lead us directly to the path of God because the words of salvation are contained therein. And as long as we trust it, as long as we believe it, as long as we follow it, we cannot go on the wrong path. It's not possible. All right. Any questions tonight? No. John Wesley is the one that started the Methodist Church. Uh, uh, Martin Luther, um, I wish I had studied this on him specifically before I come. He, he didn't get killed for his faith. Uh, basically, he left and went back to Wittenberg, and he actually had to appear a second time, if I remember right, at this assembly. They called him back again at another assembly at the city of Worms. And, um, but he ended up having to step away from the Catholic Church, and he went off and started teaching and basically started a, a reformation, if you will. And so John Wesley was a part of that in latter years that was, that was responsible for the teachings of the Methodist faith, which let me say they have stepped, many have stepped so far away from 
Um, the Methodist faith has not always been this liberal faith that it is today. Some of them. Now again, I'm not trying to lump them all into, uh, into that category, but you know what I'm saying. As a whole, for the most part, the Methodist faith is known for their, for their liberal thinking. And so um, we could say the same thing about Baptists. There are also Baptists that have stepped away. So I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to put Methodists under my foot, but, but that is the truth, is that John Wesley was one of the founders of the Methodist faith. And um, it is. That's, and there's the problem right there. The only church that's a true church, I don't care what label you put on the door. It, you can have Catholic on the door out there today. If you're preaching the truth of the Word of God and you're following it and it is your sole authority, it's a true church. I don't care what name you put on the door. Uh, but that is the problem, is that if we, don't, if we don't stick to the truth of the Word of God, we're going to go our own way. And when we go our own way, we, look, we see in the Bible what happens as a result of that too. Right. That's right. That's exactly right. He didn't? Okay. But he didn't die because of his faith. He wasn't martyred um, like William Tyndale or some of the other ones were. So, yeah. You know, the, the Reformers are a good good study. If you want to go home and just kind of look up Martin Luther and study on his... Um, and I would advise you to look up his 95 thesis to, to see the things that he, that he talked about. And you may have to define some words because we've kind of dumbed down in our culture. You know, back in this day, you know, there, the language is a little different. And so um, you may have to research some words or something, but um, you'll, get the, you'll get the gist of it as you study it. And you'll learn a lot about why we teach and why we preach the way that we do. There's a very large lack of that. You're exactly right. Not much clarity at all. Yeah.